Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Oh, and welcome to the first podcast of the new year. I'm Shelly Billinghurst. And thank you once again for joining me, my co-host, the lovely Serge Boudreaux. Serge, Happy New Year. Yeah, if I wasn't joining you, what would you do? Um, <laughs> I would so just keep working. I'm, I'm curious, Shelly. Yes. Do you believe in New Year's resolution and do you have one if you believe in it? No. Do you know what? I think um, at this point in my life, I think New Year's resolutions are not really. No, I, I don't. I will say that I think even since I was a teenager, I've always set goals for myself and and I find that those goals, they keep changing because you may accomplish them. Sometimes I accomplish them in the first month, but I do have a goal. And my goal is to read at least two books a month, things that I wouldn't normally read. So I'm well on my way because I'm halfway through the book that Elena Valentine recommended. That's The Rise of the Creative Class. Yeah. And although it was written a while ago, I'm just like, I'm underlining me. I destroy the book. It's got highlights and I've bent the pages and I've written all over it. So how about you, Serge? Do you believe in resolution? No, I believe in goals. Uh, Similar Ah. to you, I plan out my goals in Q4 to be ready for a really busy year. And it's going to be interesting because our guest is is releasing a book that talks a lot about that. I haven't read it. So the book is coming on January 12th. But I do believe strongly in goals. I do believe to plan out your year and mm-hmm. basically try to create an agenda for you to succeed, I think is is really important because in reality, most resolutions, I think, fall apart by the fourth day. It's funny because <laughs> think about it. So everyone that had a New Year's resolution was on a Saturday this year. I bet you 90% said, oh, I'll start on Monday. I'll start eating healthier. I'll start uh, <laughs> So I'm the same. I actually read two great books during holiday break. And I read Matthew McConaughey's Green Light, which I thought was fantastic. I know you're not as big a fan of Matthew McConaughey, but I I think he had some really... And I read the Instagram story, the basically behind the scenes, which was, I should know the author by heart, but we have a fantastic author. So let me introduce her because you should be reading her book. I've ordered it. Honest to God, I've got it on pre-order on Amazon. So as soon as it's released, I guess I get my copy. You know what I did, Shelly? To Canada. What? I I, I I invited her on the the show because I'm expecting her to ship me a free copy. So that's the main reason. A signed copy. Oh. (laughs) So we have Lori Ritterman, who is a speaker, writer, entrepreneur, and always focused on HR. And is also the author of the book, Betting on You. And we're going to be talking a lot about that book. Lori, welcome. So grateful to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. And I have to say, I feel like the odd person out because I have a resolution this year. Do you? Tell me your resolution. I, I think I saw it in your note, but well, tell me what I, your resolution is. I resolved not to get covid I have gone this far. I have been this healthy, been wearing a mask, washing my hands, physically distancing from people, which has been challenging because last January, my brother was diagnosed with colon cancer. He has since gone into remission, but it was very hard for me 
not to rush up there and be with him because we live so far apart, but we have really followed the guidelines and I have come this far and I'm not about to fail. So my resolution is to stay healthy and COVID free until I qualify for the vaccine. And here in America, that could be 2024. Who knows? Really? <laughs> We're in a very similar position. And I think, Shelly, I won't speak for you, but I think I have the same resolution in that end. I've followed every guideline. Shelly makes fun of me because I haven't left my basement, it seems like, in in nine months now. The vaccine has been very slow in Canada as well. We've been in the same position. But I'm going to ask you a political question. Here in Alberta, the province we're in, we've had pretty strict lockdown guide or And during Christmas, do you know how many politicians of the ruling party went on vacation outside of Canada? What would be your guess of how many? I would say a majority because people in power tend to disregard the systems that they put in place for other people, which is part of my life's work in either burning down that system or holding people accountable. So what's the number? It was, it's now up to six, which of a cap, it's, you're almost at 50% of the cabinet. It's much more fun to just stick with our, our podcast topics. Because Lori, I want to give the audience a chance to know you just a little bit better for some of us who may not know just how incredibly talented you are. Share with us your story of how did you get into HR? Yeah. Like most people, I have what's called a happenstance career. Mm. I didn't really have any plans to go into human resources or anything. Yeah, an undergraduate degree in humanities and student debt to pay because that's how we do it here in America. And I went to my university and said, I need some help. I can't go to graduate school with all of this debt. And they said there was a lady in some administrative position who knew of someone who said, Oh, there's an opening in an HR department and HR. I'm not sure what it stands for, but you'll see the company, you'll figure it out. And it turns out I had a real affinity for people and their stories and a real desire to be helpful, which is quite antithetical to everything in human resources, but I didn't know that at the time. And I remember walking into this candy factory that was operating 24-7 union environment, and my first responsibility was to tabulate time cards manually and also to man the fax machine. That's how long ago this was. And it just oh. it speaks to me because even back then, with the only piece of technology in the plant being a fax machine, employers didn't trust employees with technology. And they still don't to this day. So it was like, keep everybody away from the fax machine because they might abuse it. It was like, what the hell is anybody going to do with a fax machine? So I kept everybody away from it because it was easy. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. Yeah, that was my entree into the world of human capital management. And um, I'm not sure it got any better, but I did pay off my student loans. And as I progressively took on more and more responsibility and got new jobs, I saw what is essentially the underbelly of organizations. And it just got to the point where I could not fix it. So I had to step aside and think about this concept of HR in a different way. Everyone that's in HR has fallen into HR based on circumstance or what are the cases. But I want to interrupt because there's no good statistics, but most people do fall into their careers. This idea of 
happenstance careers is very common. Most of us come to the workforce being extreme generalists. And there's a book by David Epstein that really just talks about the world of generalists and how important it is to have kind of a body of knowledge that's really broad. And that way, when you're exposed to a new environment, you can take the pieces of things that you've seen before and use your critical thinking skills in a new way. And so, Serge, I love that you've got a happenstance career too. Like you said, I think everyone does in the sense, but I, you nailed the point there as far as I do really think this economy and how we're moving forward is so skill-based. The more skills you can acquire and the more generalized you can be, the better you're going to be in the workforce. What's your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. I have domain expertise in writing. And I think if you can communicate complex ideas in a simple way, you're always going to be fine. So when people tell me, oh, the skill set of 2021 is curiosity or empathy, I'm like, that is bullshit. The skill set for 2021 and beyond is communication. If you can communicate, you will always be able to feed yourself and more. So when someone asks me, what do I need to do to accelerate my career? Take a communications class, improve your writing, improve your presentation skills, get in front of larger and larger audiences and communicate these really big ideas that you have in the world in simple ways. If you can do that, you're going to be a rock star. We had James Ellis and Elena Valentine a couple of weeks ago, and they they made a point, and I think it really hit hard for me, is... it's the time of the artists. Exactly what you said. Communication can mean so many different things. It can be in writing, can be in content creation, can be in mm-hmm. video editing, and there's so many. But you chose the medium of communication of writing a book. I'm interested to learn more about that journey because writing a book in the outset, someone that's never done it like me, seems fairly easy. It's like you take the time, you write your story, your notes down, but it's a lot more than that. And one of the points you said was, is like selling a book is you're selling it one person at a time as well. So can you get me through that journey of why you decided to write a book and um, a little bit what's inside the book? Because I haven't read it yet. It's coming up. I hear you haven't read it. I hear you're looking for a copy. I will just say that I'm used to selling services. That's the way that I've operated in the world, consulting services, coaching services. And now I'm actually selling a product. I've got my resource copy in front of me. And this product actually has a dollar value on it. That's really specific. It's $25.99. And I know how much I make with my residuals and all of that. And it's a different way of operating in the world. So I'm definitely learning and growing in this process. And that's what I wanted to do. I had plateaued as a writer, as a speaker, as a coach. I'd launched a couple of businesses and I was kicking around in the world and I reached out to a friend of mine who shall remain nameless. I'm like, what do I do next? And he's, oh my God, don't overthink this. Write the book you were born to write. And that for me is different than just writing an easy book on the world of HR or writing a book on recruitment. This was really about writing a book that I needed, that I was born to write. And so I wrote this book as almost like a letter to myself when I was working in human resources. Because I remember seeing the underbelly of companies, seeing deviant human behavior, seeing people on both sides of management and labor act like complete morons, and wondering why people couldn't show up in the best version of themselves. On top of that, I was not showing up as the best version of myself. And I remember reading career books where people wanted me to meditate or investing crystals. 
And I'm like, oh my God, that's so frustrating and not helpful at all. So I set out to write a book that really laid out a path that if you want to live a happy life, you elevate your personal life first, and then it impacts and benefits your professional life. That is my philosophy. And had I known that in my early 30s, I might have salvaged a pretty good career in human resources. So I really wrote this book as an homage to the woman that I could have been had somebody just taken me under her wing and given me a big hug and said, it's going to be okay. So it was not an easy process, but I felt like if I'm going to do something, a job worth doing is a job worth doing well. And so I set out to publish a book with one of the top five publishers. I got an agent. I got a writing coach. I did all of this work. And my book went to auction and I got a lovely advance to write it. So I was really proud of all of this, but it was incredibly hard. And again, it's not necessarily even the writing. It's the business of publishing because I know how to be in HR. I know how to recruit, but I don't know anything about selling a book. So all of this has definitely been the school of hard knocks, throwing COVID and oh my God, (laughs) boy, it's really difficult to sell a book right now, but the book has been well-reviewed and I'm really happy with it. So I'll be happy with whatever happens. I did it with integrity. Very well said. Nobody really thinks of that is the business of selling a book. So thank you. Wow. That yeah. was a real, that's not well, what I thought you were going to say. You guys are in the human capital management field, this really esoteric field, but we're in the business of people and business. Yeah. And I'm not sure I ever really considered how publishers make money. And once I kind of got into the nuts and bolts of it, I was really interested. Every editor I met, I'm, what do you do? (laughs) Every production designer, every, anybody who touched this book, I wanted to know how they like fed their families and what they were passionate about. I don't know. So it gave me another insight into the layer of work. So that was cool. Yeah. Mm. I'd like to foray into that whole idea of feeding our families because everybody works for compensation and something that I have been reading a lot about. And I think everybody's got, I hope everyone's got a side of this uh, discussion that they want to stand on. It's about pay transparency. And because I've been in the HR space for as many years as I have, I've always had a pretty firm belief, even throughout the years on compensation, but it's been fascinating to see. And I think you spoke about it in one of your podcast episodes about corporations when they talk about pay, equal pay and transparency. I know it's bullshit. Yeah. I, I do. Like I do. I'm I'm not cynical. I am probably the least cynical person you'll ever meet. But do you ever believe it can be fixed? Will will it ever change? What's it going to take? Do you think? I am stuck between wanting to burn it all down and <laughs> wanting to see some sort of path forward because Okay. Just because you burn something down doesn't mean what you build is going to be any better. And I think there's something inherent about North American culture where we're always going to be competitive and private about certain things, status, money, wealth. That's in our weird cultural DNA right now. So I'm not sure if burning down a pay structure really gets to the heart of what's broken. So how do we fix it? I'm not exactly sure because everybody talking about how much they earn doesn't necessarily mean that anybody is going to do anything about it. And just because you have two individuals with the same job title doesn't mean they contribute in the same way. Doesn't mean they have 
inherent value the same way. So these are really complex issues. But I think starting out with the fundamental belief that equal pay and you know equal opportunity is important, it's probably a good place to start. So I'm babbling here because I don't have a lot of good answers. But um, I, I will say this, money fixes a lot of shit. And yeah. so when a corporation says to me, we don't know how to fix equal pay, it's yeah, you do. You pay people at least the very minimum, a base salary. And then you're transparent about the way you incent for performance and you right. trust people to be adults. I think there's something to be said for that. But even that feels insincere and incomplete. So in here, I don't have a real good answer, but I just think this idea that we don't know how to solve it mm-hmm. is bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And, and is legislating the answer as well? Like we were seeing, Shelly was telling me right before that Colorado is legislating that you have to be transparent in your job postings when it comes to salaries or hourly yeah. rate. Right. Is that part of the solution? And we're seeing that with Glassdoor, you get better ranking with Google for jobs if you're adding salaries. Um, and, and wait, so we- and yet Glassdoor and Google are not transparent themselves around how yeah. they pay people and have real <laughs> opaque hiring practices and compensation practices. And when they do publish the results, both organizations are clearly missing the mark. And a lot of people have a lot of platitudes around this topic and not a lot of good answers. So I don't mean to jump all over your question, but mm-hmm. is legislation the right answer? Maybe the New York Stock Exchange is now considering an act of making sure there's one female or minority, I'm using air quotes here, minority on every board that's listed. And then there's a question of tokenism, right? And yeah. I, I would say I'd rather be a token female CEO than not even have an opportunity, but that doesn't feel good either. So these are mm-hmm. really interesting, complex questions that um, need to be sorted out. And mm-hmm. I'm encouraged and excited about this conversation, but I'm also a little depressed when I see that most people who are having this conversation are white heteronormative people in positions of power. So I don't know. It's a little, it's a little frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can see that. And there's a lot that we can't control. The one thing that we can control when it comes to our careers is self-leadership and individual accountability. I'm coming from a background of privilege in, in the sense, not that I came mm-hmm. but as a white male, I've been afforded opportunities, but I still think for everyone listening is, um, you're really accountable to yourself. And that means to your, both your personal life and your work life. We've talked about collaboration for a long time. I, I lead a recruitment team and we recruit developers. I, I really don't give a fuck about collaboration. I need people just to get shit done. We need really strong developers that can work out of their basement, just get a lot of volume done and be good at their job. What's your advice for, because it's mostly recruiters listening to this and recruitment can be, as you see, a really challenging role. Uh, It's probably one of the most challenging role in any organization. What's your advice for people that should be taking individual accountability of their careers and really drive that self-leadership? Yeah, I think we fix work by fixing ourselves first. That is just something that's so core and critical to what I believe in this world. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we complain about work because there are other things deeply unsatisfactory in our own lives. So instead of dealing with a broken relationship with your partner or children who are driving you crazy, we pour all of this time and energy into this concept of work, whatever the job is, and work will always fundamentally let us down. Mm 
The other interesting thing about work is that the more money you earn, the more problems you have to solve. And companies are really good about lying about it. We say, oh, there's all this opportunity to learn and grow and do these amazing things. But once you earn over six figures, your entire job is all about solving problems. So that's all you see all day long, whether you work in marketing, sales, human resources, recruitment, you're just solving problems. And the better you are at that, the more money you earn. And if we had a more honest conversation with ourselves, with others about the fundamental nature of work in this world, I think we would learn to develop our underdeveloped personal lives and to just have a little bit more professional detachment from this job that demands so much from us. But we're not honest about any of this. To your point, Serge, we talked about collaboration in the 2010s as if it was this ideal thing. There's no collaboration without teaching people how to communicate. And there was absolutely no investment in communication in any corporation. So we talk about these ideal end states and we're mm-hmm. mostly lying. And I think recruiters had this really interesting opportunity to start being a little bit more honest with themselves and with their candidates, and even with their managers and their clients. And just 2% more honesty, like you don't have to walk into a room and tell off your CEO, but 2% more honesty means you're living 2% more of an integral life. You've got more integrity in your job. And I think integrity leads to happiness. So baby steps, man, just be honest with yourself. And I think that pays dividends down the road. Love it. Can I quote that? (laughs) integrity leads to a happier life oh my god it's so true just do what you say you're gonna do don't you you don't need to are you done yet how about now how about now like trust people just and and just imagine how freeing that is and that's to some people it's just are you nuts like like honestly that would be the response but I love that I know I'm with you people feel also a sense of ownership at work and I think that's great let's all feel a sense of ownership But I also wonder if you just let some of that go and felt more of an ownership of your own life, maybe you'd be a little bit happier. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to change gears just a little bit here, but I think I'm not too far off because I I don't think I've had a conversation where technology doesn't come up at some point. I've always felt that HR tech was and continues to be. Do you really need that? We want you to attract and bring us the best talent and here's some crayons and strength. (laughs) That's mostly what we get. But I will say there's been, I'd say 18 months and certainly since Serge and I have been doing the podcast and and it's really opened up my eyes to all the great investments in technology Mm -hmm. in HR and recruitment. Is there anything that's really exciting you about HR technology? There's great innovation in Canadian HR tech. There are all sorts of wonderful, amazing companies doing cool things around recognition and performance and employee experience. And so there's stuff that is interesting out there, but I'm going to, I'm going to say something that probably nobody wants to hear, but all of these systems are not evidence-based. They're just kind of like 
someone had a good idea of how to do recruiting or someone had a good idea of how to do performance evaluations. And so they build up a body of knowledge that's mostly marketing. And then they build up these algorithms behind these new systems and they unleash them into the world. And I'm waiting for some academic rigor from Stanford, from Cornell, from Harvard, from Yale to tell us whether or not these technologies really move the needle on employee performance, employee engagement, employee satisfaction, on retention, on improving culture. We have not had any scientific rigor around this industry. Same thing around like the job board industry. People post these jobs out to Indeed and Monster to this day. They're still using these platforms knowing that they don't work and yet they still do it. I just... I don't understand any of this because if we were taking drugs that had the same kind of performance ratings as some of these HR technologies, we wouldn't take these drugs anymore or we would be dead. I'm not sure. So where's the rigor? Where's the testing? Where's the critical thinking behind this industry? I don't know. But for every HR technology company that tells me we're here to reduce bias or we're here to improve employee engagement, I'm like, where's the research. And the research is just their own sponsored research. It drives me crazy, but nobody wants to have this conversation. I'm a lone wolf. You put it out there. It's now out there. <laughs> I, I think you made some good points there. Technology doesn't fix a shitty process. It doesn't fix many things. If your company sucks, well, technology is going, not going to make it better. You have to fix the underlying. In some ways, technology can help. There's so much noise in the HR technology. There's so many providers that have come out, and it's really hard for people to really see actually what works. Like you said, it's bang on. I never thought of it. There's really no academic research at all. No. So in reality, we're trusting the word of either review sites or the word of the person that's selling to us. Your point on job boards is interesting because I spent a big part of my career in the job board world. And and how I see it, it's still the fastest ways to get candidates. So it's it's not the right way. No. It, it's getting volume in the shortest amount of time with the least amount of effort. And unfortunately, it's a bad candidate experience uh, and the quality of candidates generally is lower. So I I think you're bang on, but we're not going to see job boards go anywhere. No, there's too much money in that industry. And it's not only a lot of people will ding the candidates who come through and yes, but we don't even have a really good way to evaluate talent. So we don't know. We don't know if these job boards are producing good candidates or bad candidates because we still come down to human decision making. When we talk about the candidates who walk through a door, I'm speaking like it's 2019, who show up on a Zoom interview, we still use this thing called intuition. We still use gut, whether we admit it or not. Human biases are still driving a lot of the decisions that we make. And you're right. No technology platform is going to solve for that. But we still have corporations throwing good money after bad. And I think that just breaks, breaks my heart because there is the money for innovation. There is the money to fix wage inequality. There is the money to open up a training budget. It's in your job board budget. It's in your ATS budget. It's in your reward and recognition program that really isn't driving the results it says it's driving. So there's all kinds of money in a company, just there's all kinds of money in a government, right? There's just all this waste and all this 
old way of doing things because we don't have a new way to do it yet. And that's where I think there's a real opportunity for academia to come in and say, we tested this. This is right. This is working. This isn't working. I think it could open up all sorts of new ways to interact in an organization. I'm just waiting for the University of Michigan and Stanford and Cornell to catch up. They have all of these great organizational effectiveness departments and HR departments doing research, but I'm not sure on what. I was just going to ask you, what do you think you're doing research on? My friend Bob Sutton is a noted professor and my mentor, and he does research on leadership, tendencies, what makes a good leader, what doesn't. And I think a lot of that is really important, but it's just wasted on corporate America because he's got a body of knowledge on what makes someone a high performer in a leadership role. And they're like, that's great. I went to Harvard, so I'm still going to hire my Harvard buddies. Yeah. Heartbreaking. So maybe it's not all of academia's fault, (laughs) but I'm still waiting for them to step up and call some winners and losers. Yeah, and I wouldn't hold our breaths. I, I think part of it is, like I said earlier, there's so much noise. There's so many different providers throwing out benefits that in reality, where do you start? Like, where do you start assessing what works, what doesn't? There's just too many players. And yeah. I might be wrong on that, but it's a massive challenge in itself. So, Well, I'm waiting uh, for the digital apocalypse to wipe all of this out so we can start all over again. Hoping for that because I, I have three young kids and I, I see my young kids and see how I grew up. I wish my childhood on my kids because the distractions and just yeah. is it, so different in that sense. But on the other side... I love technology. I leverage everything for technology. So we are catch 22. And one of the things in recruitment we always talk about is, and there's this perception with candidates out there that it's actually an ATS rejecting your resume and going to your point about biases. It's not, it's not an ATS. It's a person. I can tell you, I have a lot of technology where I work. I am still at the end of the day rejecting the candidate or one of my recruiters is I think we we still have a lot of road. And I think the biggest thing is let's fix our process before we look at technology to fix things that we don't know it will fix. That's interesting because Shelly has been in this industry a long time. And back in the day, I remember being so excited that we were going to get access to something called a Resumix. Boy, that was going to change everything. And Mm -hmm. we're going to get some tech to help us organize these requisitions and put these candidates into funnels. And it was just going to change everything. And at the end of the day, we're still looking at a resume for six seconds or 11 seconds and going thumbs up or thumbs down. Shelly, do you remember being optimistic with technology? I remember absolutely. And I call it the biggest lie ever perpetrated on HR was, and I swear, like whoever the sales rep was that came rolling through town, they're probably living on a private island somewhere because everybody bought it. Everybody bought it. And I will tell you, and this goes back to the 90s. So Serge, I realized that you were probably (laughs) still in junior high, but in the 90s, we were sold this promise of a talent pipeline and technology, like we were going to have, we were going to be able to build these pipelines. We wouldn't have to advertise anymore. That was 1992. Oh, wow. 1994, we thought like this was going to be the answer. When I started recruiting, like you, Lori, fax mm-hmm. machines was like, holy shit. Like, uh-huh. How are we going to keep up with this? Oh, the fax machine never shut off. Anyways, it, it's been the biggest smoke bomb. Mm-hmm. And whoever sold it to HR, and I will tell you, it's a VP of HR that hated recruitment that bought it. 
<laughs> like anything to avoid, yes, anything to avoid having to actually talk to people. If you can put any sort of technology between me and all those weird people out there that I don't want to talk to, that'd be great. I'll buy it. They'll sign up and they rolled it out across the country. It's so interesting you say that because there's definitely a differentiation between personalities when you talk about HR and recruitment. Recruitment, at least the good ones, see everybody as a human being and get excited about offering them a new lease on life. Every day is a do-over. Come work for us. We can change your life. Look at all this opportunity. And when you work in human resources, you look at a human being and think, deviant Yep. individual. <laughs> They're going to rip you off. They're lying. Right. And I, I'm looking um, at you and I yeah. can calculate the days that it takes to fire yep. you. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard more than one VP of HR say, I hate people. We talk about it all the time, <laughs> Shelly. Like, I know. <laughs> we talk about what recruitment uh, and HR are two different skill set, two different types of personalities. And mm-hmm. one of the biggest issues we have in recruitment is we hire people that want to be in HR to an entry as an entry level to HR, be like, come recruit. And they hate it. They, yeah. It's just not their skill set. It's not what they want to do. Uh, the personality, it just doesn't match. So we're stuck with a bunch of recruiters that just hate doing their job on a day-to-day basis. And until we fix that, I think myself and Shelly have been uh, on a speaking tour of why HR sucks at recruitment. Uh, So look at sales, look at marketing, look at those personalities before you look at someone from HR. It's real interesting. It's like the difference between cat people and dog people. I'm actually both, which is weird, but I'm allergic to both. (laughs) My nose is always itching in my house, but definitely I see a division between personalities and it reminds me of cat people and dog people. So yeah. It's very similar in that sense because I've been in recruitment my whole career. I I could not be in HR. It's just I do not have... You don't want to listen to people's sob stories all day long, executives no. or individual contributors. Come on. It's so great. It's so great. <laughs> oh, yeah. How? One of the things that I've been listening to your podcast and I... So everyone listen, it's the Punk Rock HR, which I think is a fantastic name. And so we've been pocket where I think our 45th episode and, and we enjoy it. I think there's a lot of value for us and anyone listening, but tell me about your journey. What was the idea about starting your own podcast? Well, funny enough, my best friend, Jennifer McClure said, you need a podcast. And I was like, what? I don't need a podcast. And she said, yeah, you do. And I'm going to start one called impact makers. And I went, okay. And I started a podcast and I beat her to the punch. And she's like, how is this possible? Because she's a thinker and a planner. And I'm someone who just says, all right, we're going to do this. Let's go all in. And my path to podcasting was made easier because I outsource a lot of this. If it were on me to do the work that you do to get your podcast out, I would never do it. So I just write a check, which means I have to work harder. And I hate that, but I enjoy the interviewing. I enjoy the bringing big ideas to life. I can't edit. I can't produce. I can't do any of that stuff. My path was easy because one of the lessons in life is that money makes things easier. We all know that. What type of guests do you usually have? What's the goal of your podcast? Yeah, I really try to bring big ideas forth about the world of work. And this past week, my podcast episode was interviewing a woman who is a senior leader at Alibaba Cloud, who is also a suicide and crisis hotline volunteer. 
Wow. And so I wanted to know what, not only what is your job, we didn't really talk much about working at Alibaba, but what is it like to leave your job and go do this other job, this volunteer thing that you do? And what is that? What I'm really trying to show is that is important, but work is not your worth. You can do other things in this world. In fact, you should do other things in this world and make a positive contribution. And that's really what you're going to be remembered for. That's what your children are going to remember. That's the legacy you lead and leave, not just being the best recruiter or being the best developer. What are you doing to make the world a better place? So I have a lot of those conversations. I talk to politicians. I talk to some D-list celebrities in a couple of weeks. I have an interview with a stand-up comedian to really talk about what it's like to be a stand-up comic during COVID. Like what happened to his job and how did he pivot? So it's a conversation for people who are interested in the world of human resources, but beyond, interested in human beings. If you like hearing about work, that's what this podcast is all about. My favorite episode is Scott Stratton, so fellow Canadian. Oh. Loved him. When I was in Indeed, I hired him at several events to come speak to uh, different crowds. Uh, love Scott. Love his books on marketing, on branding. So that was one of my favorite. I actually do like the ones that you do by yourself. The one that you did on conversation was one that I really enjoyed as well. So for everyone listening, if you're looking for great content, and I know there's so much content, I think we're all over-contented oh. in, in some ways. But I definitely recommend Lori's podcast. So check it out, Punk Rock HR. Lori, I, I want to bring up something. So I, I was reading your 2020 regrets. <laughs> yes. And the one I saw was you're not, you're never going to answer a DM from a man again. And I'm like, shit, I sent you a DM on LinkedIn. Did I do anything wrong? I just want to make sure that I'm not crossing <laughs> any lines with. No, anyone. no, no. And I appreciate that. And you were real generous with me when I didn't respond right away. Now you probably understand why I'm not like hopping on the back channel of any of these social platforms because men are terrible online. Not all of them, but enough of them have been inappropriate with me that I'm like, you know what? No. <laughs> so I get around to it. I'll look at my DMs and I have a lovely woman who works with me who helps me to sort out and triage what I need to see. But I've seen some terrible things on the back channel. I'm tired of it. And the only way to train people is to be candid about it and to talk yeah. about it. So if you want to reach me, I have a professional email address and there are ways to get to me. LinkedIn is fine. It's more of a professional platform, but the Instagram DM, always a bad idea. Always a bad idea. And Twitter, sketchy as well. Yeah, oh, yeah. agreed. But, oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I'm not in the same position as both of you. And and I'm in a function and a, a vertical that there is a lot more women than men yeah. in the HR and recruitment space. And I always want to be very careful in how I approach because my intentions are as pure as they can be. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. In, in that sense. But I never want to cross any line or be seen to cross any line that is not professional. So when I saw that, it, it made me think because I've reached out to a lot of people to be on this show, but also professionally connect, like a lot of people that I listen to and that I follow are yeah. female and I, I don't want to come across. So when I saw this, like, you don't want to be creepy. Yeah, I don't want to be creepy. You know, Serge, the fact that you think about this means that you could never be creepy, but it's the dude who's, Hey, how's it going? It's Tuesday night. What's going on? I'm like, 
what? And then he proceeds to tell me about his marriage. And you can clearly tell he's been drinking and, oh, I like punk rock music too. I'm like, you need a friend and it's not me. (laughs) Oh God. And I think if my husband ever did that, if he were on Twitter, like DMing some chick, He'd be living at the Hampton Inn or, you know, like, <laughs> and he would never do it. He would never do it. So something is clearly broken in our society where there's like even a kernel of hope that there's a real connection to be had on some of these back channels. What is the proper professional way if, if our listeners do want to? So obviously find your podcast, Punk Rock HR, and you're on LinkedIn. I am. And so is there, do you release a professional email if if somebody did Um, want to reach out to you? Yeah. And I love when people connect with me. I think I'm slow and it's creepy when I get the, Hey, I reached out to you yesterday. Did you get my email message? But thank you. Thank you for saying that. Oh my my gosh. My whole, everybody just calm down. (laughs) Yeah. But my whole career has been benefited from mixing and mingling and talking to people about work. Like I, I thrive on this. And so I do, I connect with people via email, a public tweet, a comment on LinkedIn, even an an introductory message on LinkedIn is fine. But my best email is always hello at letsfixwork.com. And I do want to know people's stories. I do want to connect with them, but Shelly, to your point, let's all calm down. Oh, I know this whole expectation that I emailed you yesterday. Those are the same people that when you're working with them are like, so are you done? Well, how about now? Are you done yet? How about now? Fuck back off, man. I'm done when I tell you I'm done. Yes. (laughs) That's self-leadership right there, but you have to say things and be brave enough to set some boundaries, which is always challenging. Yeah. Like just back off. Not for me. Anybody wants to learn how to set some boundaries, I will teach you. (laughs) So your book, pre-order right now on Amazon. Why should they go get their book right away or pre-order it right now? Yeah. Thanks for asking. My book is really an anti-self-help, anti-career book, and it's meant to take people who are on autopilot and wondering what's next and kick them in the pants and say, it doesn't really matter what's next on your career ladder or in your career. You, again, fix work by fixing yourself. So each chapter is really a story around how we go and we look at our individual lives, whether that's our finances, our individual well-being, our physical well-being, yeah. our passion and commitment to learning and not necessarily just for our job, how we do that with integrity, how we do that with character and how it pays off eventually in our careers. So it's really a fast read. I wrote it so that people could, if they were commuting to work on a train or in a subway, could read it in a couple of sittings, or if they go back in the day when we would go on holiday, if they're a Canadian politician, they can read it on the beach in an afternoon, (laughs) but it's super snackable. It's a quick, fast read, and it's very irreverent. I'm not trying to sell anything except self-leadership and individual accountability. So I think it's a fun book written for both men and women, a lot of fun stories and no exercises, no homework, no things you have to do. Just think a little, that's it. That's it. I can't wait. What's your favorite book of all time? I like a book by Charles Bukowski called Ham on Rye. 
And I like that book, again, because it's a fast read, very digestible. And it's about a boy who is totally out of sorts in society, does not fit in, and his journey. And so it really resonated with me and still does. It's well-written. Love it. Lori. Thank you. So everyone do go get the book, Lori Renneman, Betting on You. So go look it up on Amazon right now. Please order it. Uh, I think you will enjoy it. I can't wait to read it myself. Such a pleasure to have you in, uh, on our show. You're the original HR influencer. You're the original HR famous person. So for you to come on our show has been fantastic. Thank Absolutely. you. It makes me feel old when you say that. So <laughs> well, <jealous. laughs> oh, no. You're an OG. No, OG. OG. no it's not yes, old. Yes, but no. I'm happy to see the next generation of leaders come up like you and Shelly do in this work, podcasting. You know what? HR fame is available to all of us. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you, Lori. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.